my most famous quote ever was in an article in the New York Times many, many years ago. Then the people, you know, I talked to the, the reporter for an hour and a half. And the only the only quote I, I was given in this article was, I can't understand how people can get naked together before they get married, but they can't talk about financial issues. And I really meant that. I mean, it's it's surprising to me that, <laughs> that people are nervous about talking money before they get married. And in my opinion, money is the core of resentments and problems and issues, you know, negative issues in, in marriages. Um, and if people talk about it before they get married, which they have to do if they're entering into a prenuptial agreement, a lot of stuff gets put on the table that would not otherwise have been put on the table and gets talked through and decided upon. Welcome. You are listening to the Hero of the Hour podcast, the show dedicated to empowering you to take financial freedom into your own hands. Through expert interviews with decades of experience, this show will give you not only the tactical strategies of what's working in business, but the appropriate mindsets to master your financial future and build generational wealth. Heroes and entrepreneurs operate with a similar anything is possible mentality. And that is exactly what our show is about. Your host is none other than Mark B. Murphy, CEO of Northeast Private Client Group and best-selling author of three books, all dedicated to helping others plan for generational wealth. He and his team are on a mission to share their knowledge and techniques so that others can enjoy a life of financial security and freedom. Get ready to be inspired to create the life of your dreams. Let's go. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, Susan Breach Winters, the preeminent family law attorney in New Jersey and New York and author of three books. Susan brings more than 35 years of experience across all areas of family law, including divorce, prenuptial agreements, business and other asset valuations, custody and time sharing, child support, alimony, and equitable distribution. Today, you will learn about why everyone should have a prenuptial agreement, what a postnuptial agreement is and how it works, Susan's team approach to divorce and the importance of having a team in a divorce litigation, and my personal favorite, the importance of having constant communication with your clients for success for everybody. Thank you so much for joining. Hi, I'm Mark Murphy, founder and CEO of Northeast Private Client Group and the author of three books. And thank you for tuning into my podcast. I'd like to introduce you to my very good friend, Susan Winters, and uh, she's also an author herself, the author of the book, Will, It'll Never, Will Never Happen to Us, and you also co-authored uh, Thompson West's uh, New Jersey Family Law Practice, as well as you were the co-author of Domestic Relations. So you've got three books as well. As a fellow author, tell me uh, a little about your your experience writing books. Well, I'm trying to compete with you, Mark. That's why I have three books. If you write a fourth <laughs> one, I'm going to have to write a fourth one too. Actually, the, the first two are made for lawyers. They're legal handbooks. One is a, a book of case law and statutes applicable to family law in New Jersey. The other is forms to use when you're putting together um, all sorts of legal documents, most particularly prenuptial agreements marital settlement agreements and the like. The third one, that will never happen to us, was really written for the lay person who is either 
married, getting married, hopes to get married, or their adult children are getting married. And that one came about because my adult children were getting married and their friends were planning on getting married. And they were asking me whether they needed prenups. And of course, my pat answer was always, of course you do. And they wanted to know why. And it occurred to me that a book explaining why prenuptial agreements are so important, even if you're a young you know, young adult getting married with nothing, you're going to have something, hopefully at some point, and you need to think ahead to the possibility, unfortunately, since the, the rate of divorces is 50%, that you might be one of that group. And so my children and I and their friends um, all collaborated on putting together a book uh, talking about the value of prenuptial agreements, the value of discussing financial issues before you get married, the value of facing certain adversities, financial and otherwise, before you get married, a checklist of things to think about and experiences to have before you get married. And hopefully it'll be a helpful guidebook um, for people who are getting married. And for people like myself and yourself, who whose children will get married, and will face the possibility of divorce and what to do to be able to give and leave uh, wealth to your children without being concerned that it would go to their spouses in the event of a divorce. We know each other so well for so long. You know, the thing that bothers, you know, the, the thing that, that gets me upset is there's only 24 hours in a day. So at the end of the day, <laughs> You get back and you go, I never feel like I'm doing a, a good enough job and giving enough hours to my company, even though I'm working around the clock. I'm never giving enough time to Lisa. I'm never giving enough time to the five kids. I'm never being as, you know, my parents have recently passed. I'm never being a good enough son. And so the idea is just the, the, the guilt and the stress and that you're just working so hard and trying to make it all work. You and Bob have been happily married for 35 years. I mean, I've known Bob and both of you for for 25 of those years. You've got two amazing children who I've known for since they were little. Is that a concern for you? I mean, how did how do you balance that all? I, I that, that's a challenge I have every single day. It was a concern for me much more so when my children were younger. They're now 30 and 32, and they're able to tell me exactly what they think of me, um, for good or for bad, and. I think that we have been successful in balancing uh, life and work. I'm not sure if both of us were, you know, AAA personalities like I am and would have worked as, as well. But um, my husband was able to be there always, you know, for our family because he had his own practice. He's a lawyer as well. But he had a lot more flexibility because I always worked in a big law firm and he worked for himself. So it was a good mix of, you know, when I was available, he wasn't and vice versa. And now that my children are, are adults and able to tell us what they think of their childhood, they tell us that they think that we did our best to be there for them as much as we could. I never missed a hockey practice or a game. Both my kids played ice hockey and my husband certainly didn't. He coached hockey and the like. But I think you know, it sounds cliche, but it really is quality versus quantity. You know, I know parents who are there all the time and they're not paying any attention to their, their children. And it's hard because when you're at work, you think you should be at home. When you're at home, you think you should be at work. 
but I, you know, I, I always feel like you, you just can't say, I can't do it. You, you can do it. You can put your kids to bed if they're little, you know, at eight or nine o'clock at night. And then, you know, instead of sitting in front of the TV for three hours, you can work for three hours. And I always, I always worked at crazy hours, you know, crazy times of the day, weekends, but I did it for me. I did it because I was able to work when it didn't take away from my family. And I don't, you know, half the time my kids were sleeping and I was sitting up working for the next day. And I told the people in my department the same thing that, you know, I don't care if you do something at two o'clock in the afternoon or two o'clock in the morning, as long as it's done when it needs to be done. And many of us, including my assistant, who's been with me for 30 years and who's the best of the best, work remotely if you need to. Way before COVID, lots of my uh, people in my department were working remotely and it didn't matter. It's all about communication. And as long as you're communicating and getting stuff done and the clients are satisfied, doesn't matter to me where you do it, when you do it, as long as it's perfect, of course, it has to be perfect. <laughs> and I pride myself on that. You know what? I think everybody knows, or a lot of people certainly know, that you're the preeminent and best family law attorney in the country. People, people know that you're there. Very few people are the very best at what they do. You are the very best at what you do. Thank you. But I think what people don't know is you were a college athlete and you were a teacher first. So I think I'd love to know, I, I know, but I'd love people to know how you went from basketball, then teaching to law and how you discovered family law. Cause you know, how did this journey, I'd, they'd love to hear that journey because there's a lot of people trying to figure that out right now. Well, I think I've always been a people person. I always wanted to be one-on-one -on -one with people and, and especially children. I, I always, I always had a, a place in my heart to take care of children and so when I went to college, there weren't a lot of options for women. Nobody said be a lawyer, that's for sure. Um, in fact, my, my high school guidance counselor said my only two choices were teacher or nurse, because those were the only professions that women were able to handle. So I don't like blood. And so I figured I'm not going to be a nurse. And so I chose <laughs> teacher. But it was, it was good for me because I do love children and I do love working with children. And um, special needs children were first really getting the attention that they deserve when I was in college. So I, I, I majored in uh, special needs as education and worked as a special needs children teacher for a couple of years. The problem was when I got out of college, the job opportunities were very limited and I worked in a, a state institution with very limited resources. And it was very frustrating because I was going to save all the children in New Jersey when I was going to be a teacher. And it was impossible without being able to get, you know, the books and the supplies and things like that, that the state back then just was not supplying. And so in total frustration, I said, you know what, I am going to apply to law school um, because maybe I could work in an area where I could continue to help children. And I didn't even know, uh, because I really didn't have any any guidance at the time, uh, I didn't know you had to take a test to get into law school. So I just applied. And of course, I had no money, no money whatsoever to pay for law school, but I figured I'll just apply. I also didn't think you could go to school outside the state of New Jersey. For some reason, somebody told me that once. So I applied to two schools, Rutgers and Seton Hall in, in New Jersey. And Rutgers said, uh, 
you know, you can be on the waiting list. I'm still on the waiting list. I never, I never heard back from them 40 years later. And Seton Hall said, you can come here, but you have to take the uh, LSATs. So I asked around, figured out what's, you know, what I needed to do. And I took the LSATs and fortunately got into Seton Hall Law School. And uh, Seton Hall was very generous to me. I did extra work for the school and they helped me with tuition and all of that. And, um, and I was very lucky also in landing my first job at a firm called Bud Larner, where I was for literally 40 years. They mentored me. And you asked how, why family law? So when I joined Bud Larner, there were maybe 15, 20 lawyers, and I was working 15, 20 hours a day. Like everybody in the firm wanted me for an hour, do this for me, do that for me. And, you know, at, at nine o'clock in the morning, I was doing environmental law. At 10 o'clock in the morning, I was doing corporate law. And I got a great education because of that. But when I was starting my family, I said to myself, I cannot work these many hours for these many people and still be the mom I wanted to be. So I went to the senior partner that I was working for, a wonderful man by the name of Carl Greenberg, who I think you know, you've met, you know what I'm talking about. And I said to him, what do I do? Because I love this firm. I love you. I want to stay here, but I, I don't think I can do what I've been doing. Um you know, since I graduated from law school. And I had I'd probably been there five years at the time. And he said, well, just start your own department and then you can be your own boss. And I was like, well, I don't have any clients. How can I do that? And what department? He said, well, you've always liked working with people. You like children. Why don't you do family law? We don't have a family law department and we'll help you. And they did. And it started out just me. And at one point in time at Bud Larner, we were up to almost 19 lawyers in, in my department. And we were, you know, by the end, one of the top three grossing departments, you know, in terms of revenue for the firm. And we we did it, you know, with, with one client and then two and then three and built from there. And with the help of my mentors at my firm, um, who introduced me to other family law lawyers, who introduced me to uh, people you know, like yourself who could refer clients to me. Um, we built a practice and it did allow me to do what I was describing before, work when I went to work, wanted to work you know, at midnight or 2 a.m., uh, Saturdays or not. There wasn't anyone I needed to answer to, which is something my dad always told me, be independent. If you're independent and you have your own book of business, you can write your own ticket. And that's how it turned out, sort of just by luck. You know, you could be the best financial advisor in the world or the best attorney in the world, but if you don't have any clients, nobody knows about it. So when I first met you, the most brilliant thing I have ever seen to date, I've not seen anybody in any field do it better. You created the team approach to divorce. And obviously I'd love you to share what that is and what's that? What that meant to your practice, but more importantly, what's that meant to your clients? Because uh, it, it's it's flat out knockdown brilliant. Well, what what I realized early on in my practice of family law is that there were a lot of family law lawyers who thought they were therapists, who thought they were trust and estate lawyers, who thought they were financial advisors, accountants, and I couldn't understand that because I went to the same law school they went to. I studied the same law and and understood the family law practice and 
knew for sure that I could not give uh, therapy. I could not give financial advice. I could not do forensic accounting. I could not talk to them about the value of estate planning. And I went to different people whose expertises were in those fields and said, how can we work together so that our individual expertises can benefit the client? And we would put together a team. So depending on what the client's needs were, there would be, I would be, I called myself the quarterback of the team, even though I don't understand football that well, but I knew what a quarterback did. And I said, I will be the quarterback. And I said to my clients, I will be the quarterback and I will find you the other members of your team that you need given your particular circumstances. So if someone was struggling emotionally, which is almost everyone, and I don't blame them, going through a divorce, I would say you need a really good therapist who understands the stages of divorce and what you're going through. And let's find you someone that you can talk to because talking to me, you might as well talk to your sister, your, your friends. I don't have any training in that. Let's find you someone who does. Practically everyone, everyone going through a divorce needs a financial advisor. I would say, let's get Mark Murphy on the phone. Let's talk about what he can do for us. If there was a business involved that needed to be evaluated or a tracing of assets, we need a forensic accountant. Let's talk to these couple of people that I know who do that for a living who can add value to your case. And we all, again, depending on the, the particular needs of the client, we would then all work together and provide the best service possible. Because the one thing every client would say to me was, oh my gosh, now I have to pay three people. Now I have to pay four people. It's bad enough having to pay a lawyer. And I said, no, you don't understand. Don't pay a lawyer to give you therapy. Don't pay a lawyer to give you financial advice. Pay the person who has that expertise. And you're going to wind up saving money because you're going to be talking to the person who can really help you. And I look like the best lawyer in the world because I can walk into court with something that you or a forensic accountant have prepared for me. And it's perfect because it was prepared by a person who knew what they were doing. It's been wonderful. And I'm actually surprised that more family law lawyers have not really adopted that approach because, I mean, my clients are very, very grateful that they have there's someone like you on the team. And when the case is over and before they sign the final agreement, they know that the rest of their life is planned out financially. They know they can you know, afford what they want to, you know, the lifestyle that they want to live. And you pick it up from there and they're all set. You know, I, I don't believe in competition. You know, I think there's plenty of work and a lot of abundance for lots of family law attorneys, lots of financial advisors. But clearly, I believe in differentiation. And clearly, that team approach to divorce differentiated you. So if you had, like in my mind, I think financial firms, but in your mind, I think so clearly, if there were four family law attorneys lined up one after the other after the other, why would they pick you than the other three? That's a clear differentiator. There's many more, but that's a clear differentiator. And I'm sure if they interviewed four firms, which people often do, they would pick you every time, not only because of who you are and the work you did, but it, you know, it clearly gives them security, peace of mind, and that they've got sort of the cradle to grave of, you know, a la carte to be able to pick and choose what they want, but to make sure that they they can get the best result and then go on to have the best life they have, the best life possible. And uh, 
All I can tell you is the reason why you're the best is that there are an army of people out there that literally grab their friends when they're going through a divorce by the wrist and they drag them into your office. So that's how we know it's working. And it's been going on for decades. It concerned me that clients were signing agreements and then adding professionals to their team. And it's too late. It was too late. Once you sign an agreement, you are stuck with it. You can't then go to a financial advisor and the financial advisor says, whoa, what did you sign here? This isn't good enough for you. This isn't going to accomplish your financial goals. And you know, then the client would call the lawyer and say, this isn't good enough. My financial advisor said, well, the financial advisor should have been there all along. Day one, I put my team together. It has to be day one because there's so many things that go on in the course of the divorce where financial decisions need to be made. Planning needs to be done. People need to be emotionally stable to make them. So all of these team members, day one, I talk to my clients about the team and who should be on their team. You know, I, you probably remember this, but it was about 15 years ago where I was tasked with this project. Uh, I had four women between 27 and 41 who were on track to become partners at, a, at an international accounting firm. And I was, uh, I somehow, I, I don't, either I was volunteered or I was volunteered to help mentor them to partnership. And so immediately what I did is I called you. And uh, I still, years later, although, you know, what I got out of that was, you know, hopefully I helped them. But I, what I got out of that was, you know, I've got four women that will take a bullet for me. And I've got uh, whatever I taught them, I learned 10 times as much from their perspective. But since I didn't know what I was doing, the first call I made was to you. And they still talk to me about years later about how invaluable you were at helping them think through not the next client, but how they presented themselves, what the future would look like to sort of, you know, I, the languaging I would use is, I think you helped them focus on their future self, not who they were that minute, but who they were going to be and who they aspired to be. Let me account because that, that I, I, such a cool project that I was had got to be part of, but it wouldn't have been successful without your help. I'd love to hear your thought about that. I do remember that yeah. very well. And those women yeah. were fabulous. And I I love, love to mentor women. No offense to men. I mean, I love men too, but <laughs> I love to see a woman at any age be successful. It's just such a joy to me to see somebody. And it could be a young person who says, I can't do something, in which case I say, yes, you can. And here's how you can. And I think that's all people need to hear and, you know, talk about what they need to do to accomplish whatever it is they want to accomplish. But also older women, you know, I represent women who are older and who have been out of the workforce for many years, decades in some cases. And the way the law in New Jersey and New York is set up does not really allow for women not to earn money or not to be imputed an income. And they're deer in the headlights scared. And I don't blame them to go back to work after 10, 20 years out of the workforce. You know, don't have the computer skills, don't have this, don't have that, um, don't have the confidence. And I tell them the same thing. Yes, you can. And I can't tell you the number of clients that I have had at all ages that I say, I am so proud of you. You are the poster child for I can't do it. Yes, you can. And women go back to school. They take computer courses. 
Um, even young women who have been out of the workforce, you know, four or five years, even just, you know, having a baby, you know, right after getting married and deciding not to work for a few years, and then unfortunately winding up in a divorce. And it's scary. But I am telling you, it can be done. And I love it when they take my advice that they can do it. And they do go ahead and do it. Have you noticed that life is getting more and more expensive? From grocery prices to real estate values, everywhere you turn, prices seem to be skyrocketing. Well, Mark has dedicated decades of his career and life to serving entrepreneurs and professionals to build real wealth, and in most cases, multi-generational wealth. The reality is, we all have to navigate turbulent times in this economy, but the difference will be for those that have a roadmap and a customized plan for building wealth. That's why, as a listener to this podcast, we are so excited to share with you first access to Mark's newest book, The Ultimate Investment, a roadmap to grow your business and build multi-generational wealth. When you access this book, you'll discover how to know when you're working a job instead of a business. That hard work isn't all about hours put in. This will make you more productive. Why you need to live with your back against a wall. How to surround yourself with the right people who support your vision and so much more. Go to www.markbmurphy.com forward slash book to get access now. Once again, go to www.markbmurphy.com forward slash book. And now, back to the show. The other thing people, I think, reflexively says, a family law attorney, of course, will help me through my divorce. But I find you spend as much or more time on prenuptial agreements and postnuptial agreements and child custody. What is that? What does the whole field like encompass? What What are other things that people, you know, that they should be focusing on, but they're not focusing on those types of agreements? Well, definitely prenuptial agreements, and I'm happy to say I'm doing more and more of them because I think that they are invaluable in terms of forcing a marrying couple and their parents and others to talk about financial issues. It's so funny. I mean, I'm, I have a, my most famous quote ever was in an article in the New York Times many, many years ago that, that people, you know, I talked to the, the reporter for an hour and a half. And the only, the only quote I, I was given in this article was, I can't understand how people can get naked together before they get married, but they can't talk about financial issues. And I really meant that. I mean, it's it's surprising to me that, <laughs> that people are nervous about talking money before they get married. And in my opinion, money is the core of resentments and problems and issues, you know, negative issues in, in marriages. Um, and if people talk about it before they get married, which they have to do if they're entering into a prenuptial agreement, a lot of stuff gets put on the table that would not otherwise have been put on the table and gets talked through and decided upon. And you would be surprised how many people have differences of opinions about money that they've never voiced to their fiance or their parents or their in-laws or whatever it is. And when you're doing a prenuptial agreement, which basically talks about what happens if the couple gets divorced? How are the assets viewed? How are the assets distributed? Does anybody get alimony? The only thing you can't deal with in a prenuptial agreement is child support and child custody. Everything else you can talk about 
and agree to ahead of time. And if a prenuptial agreement is done properly, um, and there's a statute in New Jersey and New York that tells you how to do that. And if it's and if it's done properly, it'll be enforced. And then a divorce simply is we're going to enforce the terms of the prenuptial agreement pre-agreed upon and all laid out in the prenup. And then the only thing left to talk about, not that it's the only thing because it's the most important thing, but is child custody and child support. But you're not fighting about alimony. You're not fighting about the distribution of assets. You're not fighting about a a business valuation. Um, It's all agreed upon in advance. And it makes what is otherwise a very lengthy, expensive, heart-wrenching experience much easier. It's still not easy because you have to deal with child issues and the emotions of the divorce and everything else, but it is much easier and much, much, much less expensive. Postnuptial agreements is another uh, area that's becoming much more popular. Um, New York uh, views postnuptial agreements much more kindly than New Jersey. Um, my partners and I are working on the New Jersey courts to try to get the judges to appreciate the value of postnuptial agreements, which are just what the name says agreements reached between a married couple. So couples who did not have prenuptial agreements realize after they're married that that probably would have been a good idea. But but if, if both parties are represented by competent counsel and they go into it with free will, what what is the what, what why do New Jersey courts not look at them uh, favorably right now? Because even though that's the facts, that's what happened. They went into to it freely with counsel and not under duress. When they're getting divorced, they look back and they say, I don't like the terms of the postnuptial agreement. I want more. So I'm going to claim that I was under duress. And so they say the agreement is not valid because I was under duress. Duress is a tough thing to prove or disprove. So you wind up in litigation over the validity of the postnuptial agreement. That's New Jersey. New York is more of the mind, the New York courts are more of the mind to say two adults can contract for whatever they want, whether they're married or not. And I happen to agree very strongly in that position. So we've been trying to get New Jersey sort of up to speed on that and look at spouses as equals and not as one person is, you know, overpowering the other, that if there is a lawyer involved and the person, you know, is of sound mind, there should be no reason why, again, two adults can't contract, even married couples. You know, when I put together this podcast, the kind of working title was, I, I wanted to, I talked about heroes a lot because, you know, one is I wanted to only have people that were personal heroes to me on my podcast. And you're clearly fit that bill. And I think the second thing is I decided 37 years ago, I wanted to be a hero to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial thinking people and to our clients. And clearly you've been a hero to your clients. I know that because I, I know many of them. Any comment about what you think a hero or who people or heroes to you are? Because that, you know, that's, uh, you know, you know, we, as, as I always say, and we both, one thing that we also have in common, I knew, I think we both thought we'd be successful. I think we both thought we'd make money. But this has really been our vehicle to make other people's lives better, and and so to me, that's that's what a hero is to me. But 
I just love your comment because I, I, you know, we've talked about a lot of things over the years, but that's not something we've ever, a topic we've ever talked about. Well, I agree with you 100% in your definition of a hero. And I also think it harkens back to what I said before. A hero is someone who never says, I can't do it. And the, at the other side of the coin is being a hero to someone is telling them they can do it and encouraging them to do it and supporting them to do whatever their life stream is or whatever the next step is in their life. And I just think I have a very, very positive attitude when it comes to everyone um, doing what they want to do and, and me kind of saying, well, well, why, why not? Of course you can. And, you know, I can, I, I can tell them, you know, my story and, and, you know, it, it was, like I said, I, I kind of, a lot of it, I did sort of just innocently or blindly thinking there were no barriers. And I guess maybe if you if you can encourage someone to think there are no barriers, you can do it. You can accomplish what you want to accomplish and do whatever you can do to assist them. Then I think you are a hero and to them. And then and then they become a hero to you because they did it. Mm. Proud of them. You know, it's we've both been doing this a long time. And I know we've been together. We've done marketing events together. We've done seminars together. We've been to political events together. We've had dinners with clients together with you and I and Bob and par- you know partners of mine, partners of yours. I look back on it and it's been a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of work and tiring. I, I don't know. Is it more fun or is it more tiring at this point? I I I I still love it, but I but it's. I mean we. I mean we were doing it. You know. We were doing like three or four nights a week, you know, together and apart, you know, for a long time. And it's, uh, I look, you know, how do you, how do you reflect on it now and, and going in the future? Well, you certainly always made it a lot of fun, Mark. And I got to have, you know, some amazing experiences going to places I never would have gone, restaurants I would never would have gotten to go to, people I never would have met. And I think when you're doing it, when you're in the middle of it, it's fun. Because people are enjoying themselves, they're talking about themselves, they're talking about their dreams and their their jobs, their histories, whatever it is. So when you're in the moment, I think it is a lot of fun. And, you know, you're I'll never forget you inviting me to Mardi Gras. Like what would have been the chance that I would dress up like a a Renaissance maiden and throw beads out Mm -hmm. to little kids on the streets of New Orleans? I mean, it was fun. But when you get home and you close the door, it's like. Oh, that was a lot of work. You know, that was, but I mean, it's worth it. It's worth it. The connections you make, the people you meet, the lives you touch, the experiences you have. Um, and it's very interesting because I see young people now willing, I mean, some of them willing to do it. And I say to them, you know, trust me, it's another job. You have your family as a job, you have your job as your job, and then you have your networking and marketing as another job. So you have to be willing to look at it as such. And it definitely looks like a lot more fun from the outside looking in than when you're in that grind. But I think in the long run, the experiences I've had, it's been worth it. And certainly the business that it's brought to me and the experiences that it has brought to me. I definitely think it was worth it. And, you know, do I, I still do it? Not to the extent you do it as much. Um, I don't know that you have to do as much as you do it. I think you're just programmed like that to, to continue to entertain people and, and help people. And, and I am too, but uh, maybe a little bit differently these days because of the whole remote uh, thing now 
you know, I, I don't meet clients in person as much. I don't go out to dinner as much with, with clients or referring people, but I think it's keeping in touch and keeping that connection. And so now it's by zoom instead of, you know, at a dinner party or at a fundraiser, but, but it's different ways of doing it. And um, my husband's been playing music recently in a band, which has been such a kick. And I am absolutely amazed at the connections that I have made literally just sitting in a venue where he's playing music by myself and talking to people that are around me. They're sitting at a bar or at a restaurant, whatever it is. And I think people are people wherever you are and they want to know who are you? What do you do? And of course, I always manage to tell them I'm a family law lawyer and I'm, I can also, I, I live in, in Florida some of the time and I have a mediation certification in Florida. So wherever I am, it might be a hockey arena, it might be a bar in Florida, but I'm always trying to work in, you know, what I do for a living and how I like to uh, take this team approach and help people. I think that that is, that is, uh, that is absolutely fabulous. You know, one, one of the things I find with, with young people is, and there's young people that work in our firm is they they're f- focusing very hard on mastering their craft so they focus on the transactional piece but i think the the thing that's the discovery part for them that as long as the people we work with are people and as long as the clients are people we're not really in the financial services business we're in the people business and i think when they make that connection because they're so programmed all they do is play video games and are on their phones all the time that they they that they're seeing like the world open up once they once they have more relational transactions than transactional transactions or interactions. They train, you know, and so it's a it's. A, I, I just wonder. You know, this Zoom has been amazing, and it's become not a communication device but a transportation device. Yes, and you know, so it's one thing for you and I to Zoom. We know each other very well. It's another thing to have brand that I I haven't convinced myself yet or not is with a brand new relationship. Can you have those transformational kinds of relationships? if you've never really met the person or is it important to meet them and so far so good, but it's a, it's a new process and it's a discovery. And I think, I think people that have a hard time connecting are going to have even a harder time connecting with new people on zoom. What's your experience been? I've had a wonderful experience, honestly. And right at this moment, I have only actually met in person two clients. I'm currently representing all the rest of them we're either talking on the phone or we're having a zoom meeting like this one. And like you said, I mean, people are people you, if we were just sitting across from each other, I don't think it would be any different than mm. us talking right now. And I think my clients are very comfortable with that. And I think for one very good reason, and this has been sort of the center pin of my practice as well. It's constant communication. I know that if I was going through a divorce, I would want to have my lawyer on speed dial. And I would want to be able to get on Zoom with them or, or whatever I wanted, any minute, any moment of any day that I wanted to. And I am always available. I pride myself in communication because there are a lot of lawyers who, you know, get a call on Monday and return it on Friday. That right. is completely unacceptable. I mean, I've had a rule in my department for all the years I've practiced from the moment I got my first associate and basically was you call a client and even an adversary back or, or email them or text them some way, communicate back within the same 24 hours that they reached out to you or you're fired. 
And that was basically my rule. And nobody ever crossed that rule because they know how serious I am about that. And I know you're the same way. And it means the world to me that if I call you, I know I'm not going to be waiting three days to get a call back from you. And it would, again, it wouldn't matter if I said, come meet with me or call me. It doesn't matter. I just need to talk to you. I need to communicate. You know, that as our, as our firm has gotten larger, the, the, the thing that I've got to communicate to people that's the most frustrating is you and I are both, and I use it in a, the most highest compliment, we are psychotic about returning texts, emails, phone calls right away. Because if people wanted to talk to us tomorrow, they'd call us tomorrow. Then it wouldn't call right. us today. You know, they, you know, they, I and mean, that's the business we're in. And, you know, as Woody Allen says, 90% of life is showing up, you know, so just showing up is, it doesn't, you know, is there, but I think that not, not everybody quite gets that, um, you know, quite get, quite gets that, that, uh, that how, how important that that's such a differentiator. I always say, if I talk to people who are giving a, a presentation in front of a group of any kind of advisors, you know, financial advisors, lawyers, accountants, bankers, whoever, I'd say if you could pick only one reason why I've been reasonably successful, it's been that I, I return phone calls with a vengeance. And I also tell our team that part the biggest frustration in our business is since you have to collaborate with a lot of different people in complicated financial matters, you're going to spend sometimes 50% of your time just making sure other people are doing their job and doing it right and doing it on time, which is just like frustration because, you know, who woke up today say, I want to wait, wait 45 minutes on the phone, uh, you know, with the phone company or who, you know, who wants to wait, you know, five days for a response to a simple question that the client needs today. It's amazing to me also when you talk about that, that, you know, I, I, I said this at the top of the broadcast, I don't say this now, I think very few people are the best at what they do. I think you're the best at what you do, but it's not like the people that are in your industry are stupid or bad or lazy. They're good. They're very good. They're very smart. But the fact that these little differentiating things that are unique, remarkable, and therefore memorable, like make you just stand head and shoulders above everybody else because they don't have that same mindset. And it's amazing to me that even when you try to share that, which you do and I do with people, because we come from abundance, there's plenty of fish in the sea. There's, there's plenty of people getting divorced. There's plenty of people that need financial advice. They still don't embrace it or don't seem to get it. I, it's, I, I don't understand why. And if you work, and if you work in my form, if you don't get it, you can't be there. Yeah. It's difficult. It's not easy to keep up with all the phone calls. You know, I mean, it started out, it was phone calls, you know, and, and now it's phone calls, faxes, texts, emails, you know, what's next. And, and it's very hard to do, but I think it's the most important thing. I really do. And, you know, one of the things I tell the young associates that I have is don't let things pile up. If you don't respond to something, it used to be, you know, a pile of papers on your desk like this. I couldn't go home at night. I could not put my head on the pillow until that pile was empty because the next day the pile would be like this. And then like this, same thing with emails. If you don't keep up texts, emails, faxes, scans, everything, you're never going to be able to catch up. And then you're behind the eight ball all the time. And I think if you just instantly respond, it's done. And I tell my young associates, like, just humor me, try it. You're not going to be. And they're like, well, but I'm, I'll be interrupted. I won't be able to. I said, you will be. You will be. You'll, you're going to respond to this. And then you're going to go back to that. Just do it. Just respond. Just communicate. The client needs you now. And they always come back to me and they say, you know, it is kind of hard to get back on focus, but you're right. I'm like, I, you know, I know 
I know that organizational skills are the key. And, you know, we're all smart. We all went to law school or, you know, got our master's degree, whatever it is. But we all don't communicate as well as we should. And I do agree that if you do that, even if you just say, I'll be back to you at one o'clock, it makes you heads and and shoulders above everyone else. And my clients, I have some adversaries and clients that like laugh at me. Like, were you waiting for my call? You know, like, <laughs> because I, I just call them right back because it just, and I, I could be walking down the street and I know you do this too. Like, it doesn't really matter. You don't have to be sitting at your desk, relaxed, you know, having a cup of coffee to call people back. You can be walking down the street. You can be, you know, sitting in the back of an Uber. Um, people just want to hear from you. Business is so simple. It's like some simple things and it's amazing how few people, how few people, few people do that. Like I, I literally remember a few years ago talking to a colleague of mine and, and he would say, he said to me, I have learned so much from you. He said, I call my clients back promptly and they're not angry when I speak to them. <laughs> I thought he was like screwing with me. Like, you know, like I, I thought it was, I thought he was busting my chops and, and it was, it was like a sincere comment. And I'm thinking, what a revelation, you, you, you know, and sometimes it's the simplest things. I mean, I remember my very first mentor uh, when I got out of law school was a lovely man, great lawyer, great person. And he he loved sitting and chatting with me about, you know, how to be a good lawyer and, you know, how, how best to communicate with people and the like. And he said, you know, you could be able to recite every case in the state of New Jersey and New York and the world. And no client would care about that if you didn't call them back. Yeah, right. I thought that was really smart. And he said, you need to be there when a client needs you. They don't care if you got an A in torts in law school, or if you knew every new case that came out of the Supreme Court. They want to talk to you. They want to know you're there thinking about them, giving them advice when they need it. I thought that was excellent advice, and I took it. One of the things as a financial advisor that I think is important, and, and first of all, I I am a proponent of marriage. I, I'm a proponent of uh, love. At this age, I still believe in fairy tales, um, but at the same time, I think it's you you have to be smart. And as a financial advisor, you know, if if divorce is is certainly on the table, which it is for a lot of people, at least they're thinking about it. I think one of the most important things they need to do is they need to find out what their rights are and what it looks like that I think that, you know, not when you made the decision to get divorced, but I think you have to know what divorce would look like financially and otherwise, because you sit together and you're planning people's lives and they say, well, I may or may not get divorced. And I said, well, one of the first things they need to do is, is call you and say, you know, if I do get divorced, what does my retirement look like? What does my business look like? And I think they're like surprised that they kind of, instead of, you know, ready, aim, fire, it's like fire, ready, aim. And then they're surprised that it's a cluster stup, you know, because they haven't planned properly. And by the way, I hope if it's the right thing, I want them to stay together with their spouse. I want them to keep their family together. I don't think that's ever a great thing, but unfortunately it's, it's part of life. And, you know, I think, I think people wait too late to get your advice oftentimes and, you know, and, and they're not, they don't have enough information to make decisions because divorce is, you know, divorce is made as a decision made on many levels, not just the relationship, it's the family, it's finances, it's, it's health. It's, you know, there's, there's, there's dozens of, of variables you have to make in that decision. But I mean, is that, I mean, does that, do you think that's true or do, or do you think that that's not true? Absolutely true. And, you know, not again, not to sound cliche, but knowledge is power, right? right. So why wouldn't you get yourself educated 
about something that you're about to enter into, whether it's a divorce, whatever it is, why not become educated? And I don't believe Googling New Jersey divorce is the way to get educated because there's a lot of misinformation you know, it, it, that, that's out there and a lot of misunderstandings. You know, I'll have clients say, uh, you know, I would like a consultation with you, Susan, but I've already Googled, you know, New Jersey divorce and I know pretty much everything about it. And honestly, they don't. I mean, they'll say, I understand that such and such. And I'll say, well, no, no, that's not the case. Well, I read it here. Well, that's not that. That's something different, whatever. But I mean, a lot of lawyers like myself offer free consultations. Why not take advantage of that? I mean, and if you if you talked to me for a couple of hours in a consultation or any experienced lawyer in my field, they should be able to give you, you know, quite an education. I call it family law 101. But, you know, in a very short period of time, I can understand your income situation, your your asset liability situation. And again, any experienced lawyer can kind of put that together pretty quickly and not to the dollar, not to the exact percentages, but can say, this is kind of the range of where it would look. And I've often said to experienced lawyers in the beginning of a case, I, let's say I represent the, the husband and my adversary represents the wife. We could write down on a piece of paper how it's all going to work out, not necessarily custody-wise, but certainly financially, and put that piece of paper in a sealed envelope and open it at the end of the case. And it would be within a 10% range of where we both said it would wind up. And I try not to get involved in nonsense. You know, I try to focus on the, the issues that are important to my client. I don't you know, if, if they have emotional issues, again, the team is there. They can talk to the therapist. I try to focus on what I do best, which is dividing the assets, figuring out the income for alimony and child support purposes. And, you know, I can do that in a consultation. Again, not to the dollar, but I can listen to you. You can tell me what your circumstances are. And I can tell you how the law will apply to your case and what it means for you. And I'll very often, even in that first consultation, ask, you know, do you have a therapist? Do you have a financial advisor? Is there a business involved? If there is, we need to talk to a forensic accountant. Oftentimes, business owners will call me and say, well, how's my business going to be, you know, looked at in terms of New Jersey law? And when I tell them, it's kind of a scary process and it's an expensive process. And I will say, Maybe you want to talk to a forensic accountant before you embark on this on this divorce proceeding and, and get a better idea of how a forensic accountant will look at your business, what documents he'll need to look at, what, what investigation he'll need to do. And again, once you know, once you have, once you're armed with that knowledge, I think jumping into it feels a little more like you have a parachute as opposed to an empty black hole at the bottom. You know, one of, one of the things that I learned from you early on, one of the great lessons that you taught me personally was I think of you as an incredibly warm, empathetic, caring person. And I'd like to think of myself as the same. But when someone's going through a divorce, they're most of the time they're whipped up emotionally. And sometimes if you're almost too empathetic to them, you whip them up even further, which doesn't serve their purpose. 
And so, you know, I, like as I used to say, kind of tongue in cheek, I, I go, it doesn't matter if your spouse slept with an 11 year old boy or a sheep, it, you know, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the case in New Jersey, you know, that let's focus on, on keeping focused on, on what the core issues are. So, so it took like one of our great strengths was our empathy. And we have to kind of check that at least initially to get the person to be able to, to make really good, wise decisions about their life going forward. And I thank you for that. That was like one of the, one of the like invaluable lessons that you taught me. And I learned decades ago and it, and it served me so well over the years. I remember the exact circumstance you're talking about, Mark, but you know, I think you can be empathetic without stirring the pot. If you know what I mean, I, I mean, I don't think I ever leave my empathy genes at the door, but I also don't create issues. I, and sometimes I'm accused of not being aggressive enough because I don't want to fight over, you know, who gets the Cuisinart. And I have to be the objective one. I have to be the one that does the analysis of cost benefit, you know, and, and you know, do you want to pay me my hourly rate to fight over a Cuisinart, which is a third of my hourly rate. You know, it makes no sense to me. And I don't, I also don't want to create more animosity between a couple getting divorced because nine times out of 10, that couple needs to co-parent for the a lot of years, you know, for the rest of their lives. They need to raise their children together, even though they're divorced. And the more hostile the divorce is, the more animosity animosity that's created in the divorce proceeding, the harder that is. You know, you're mad at each other because you, you know, you you had such a terrible divorce and you're fighting over everything. The, the less you can do that going through the process, the better co-parents you're going to be when it's over. And the result is the same, you know, and, and your life will be the same whether you get that Cuisinart or not. But I, I think there's a way to do that. And I think you've, after my one little reprimand of you, <laughs> when you were... I think just being a little too empathetic, you, it was amazing how you you immediately figured that out. And I think, you know, we work well together in that respect. You know, we're we're kind to our clients, but we're not trying to create issues that don't exist or don't have to exist. You know, we'll, we'll put at the end of this uh, podcast, we'll put uh, where they can get it. I think virtually everybody should buy your book, especially the one will it will never happen to us. If they should buy it for themselves, they should buy it if they've got kids, they should buy it if they have grandkids. And I think everybody should do it. And you know, one of the things I'd like to impose upon you, you know, don't feel any pressure to say yes, but I think one of the things we should do down the road is we ought to do a master class on this because I think people would, you know, that have a lot of questions about all of these issues. And I think, uh, you know, you know, if, if you, I, I think you would give them a little bit of a little direction in terms of, uh, you know, what they need to do to, to make their lives better. So, once you get past the prenuptial agreements aren't romantic, um, <laughs> everyone realizes how valuable they are. I, I can't tell how many so many clients that I have that would roll over in their graves if they found out that an in-law got everything they worked for for the last sixty years. You know that uh, you know left their son or daughter. Uh, so you know, I mean, just just even that alone, I have people talk about to me about that almost every every week or every day. And have you ever talked to anybody who's actually gotten divorced who didn't wish they had a prenup? right here <laughs> but uh i don't think anybody i think we're at, it's it's a it's a it's a very popular club but uh i just i just want to thank you for 25 years of, of friendship and partnership from both you and your entire family and bob and i just hope we uh, get to have 25 more even better years together and and thank you thank you so thank much, you for bob. everything thanks susan bye-bye bye now 
I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Hero of the Hour podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share the podcast episode with them. You can catch the show notes for this episode and more at www.markbmurphy.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to check out the other great books and resources on the website while you're there. Once again, it's www.markbmurphy.com forward slash podcast. All links can be found in the description below. We look forward to serving you on the next episode. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS or Guardian, and opinions stated are their own. Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. OSJ, 200 Broad Hollow Road, Suite 405, Melville, New York, 11747, 631-589-5400. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial Representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Northeast Private Client Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0B36048. Arkansas Insurance License Number 741545. Expiration and submission numbers located in the show notes.